first day of establishments opening up their gardens. A breeze of normality. The weather change swallows up the warm temperatures and leaves us with the melancholic feeling that accompanies the raindrops, cold wind, and dark sky. Is this a sign? Should we slow it down with loosening up the restrictions and continue the careful approach to our lives that we have established over the past two months? There's one word that has been mentioned consistently, starting with the pandemic, solidarity. It quickly became painfully obvious who around us was thinking collectively and who couldn't care less. Whether it was roommates continually inviting people over without your consent, or people on the streets refusing to wear face masks, it all gives you a good notion of what everybody's idea of collective responsibility is. Until further notice, here's our podcast. With things slowly going back to how we knew them, we will take some time to recenter and consult the ongoing evolution of this podcast. With that said, we're looking forward to coming back and presenting you a new format in a few weeks. Take care, and thank you for your support until now. Today, Eva Mayeska will be talking about Václav Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless, while discussing the practice of feminist artists as an inspiration for resisting the current oppressions and exploitative modes of crisis capitalism. I would like to greet you and to welcome you to a couple of minutes, perhaps one hour of recording. I was asked to speak about artistic practices uh, in the time of pandemic, about uh, specific um, theories and, and art practices that deal with uh, our weaknesses, our powerlessness perhaps. And I'm happy to do it because since several years I have been investigating and researching several topics that might be interesting in the times we have now. So I've been working on the concept of weak resistance which we started in 2015 uh, with Walid al and Rosa Barozzi uh, at the ICI Berlin. We decided to have a conference entitled Weak Resistance and to invite a large number of scholars and also activists from different countries and from quite different disciplines to discuss the prospects of agency which is more ordinary, common, non-heroic, and which also begins in a moment of weakness rather than in strength. I believe that in Czech Republic in particular, you are actually quite familiar with the concept of powerlessness via the essay of Václav Havel, The Power of the Powerless. As much as I must say I disagree with some part of his political project from 1970s, but also from neoliberal times, I tend to like the essay, The Power of the Powerless, because of several reasons. One of the reasons is that it gives us all the opportunity to discuss the political agency in the context we know, so in the context of the middle Europa, you know, middle Central Europe, in Polish it would be Europa Centralna, in Czech probably something similar. So basically we have this locality which is somehow exciting, because I don't know about you, obviously, but for me, having a concept, a notion, a text created in our region is quite a rare opportunity. Usually I read and reference all kinds of Western analysis and theory, and it's only seldom that I can reference a text or a name, intellectual, that comes from our area. So I believe that it's useful to critically revisit this text. Just as in Poland we read Jacek Kuroń, uh, Adam Michnik, and other opposition members, but we also reread, um, you know, communist activists and uh, especially women within this activism have recently been given quite a lot of analysis, especially from literary uh, theory and sociology. And I think my effort to bring back Havel might be interesting for you as an exercise in critical reappropriation of a conceptual work, somehow a little bit against the odds of it. So as much as Havel, for instance, declares himself as a Christian philosopher, 
as a believer also, believer in God, believer in, you know, theological concepts that I'm quite far away from. Also, he's clearly anti-communist political position, I think is quite obvious. Still, I think there are some moments in his way of explaining the ordinary man, you know, the grocery salesman and their activity, but also the common people's activity that could be of interest. So obviously I would be much more happy to see your faces right now, to see whether you agree, disagree, whether you feel interested or not. But for me, uh, this author, I mean, Václav Havel and the text, The Power of Powerless, was quite an important reference, both for the projects of weak resistance, but also for the text today and for a sort of uh, intellectual slash artistic praxis, which I got involved into in the last weeks. So after the pandemic has started, I actually felt super overwhelmed. I felt weak because I felt extremely stressed. And my experience of the first two up to three weeks of the pandemic was actually fear on all levels that you can imagine. Somehow it so happened that the Polish National Health Insurance um, Institution contacted me to tell me that they don't think I have a health insurance. So imagine my stress in the moment when a pandemic starts and people are, we are learning about growing numbers of people endangered and people dying of the disease. And then getting this news that you don't have a health insurance is actually really not helpful at all. And I hope you don't have this kind of experience. If you do, then I'm in solidarity with you, obviously. But if you don't, then probably feels much safer. I mean, I was promised quite a large honorary from a big publishing house, and the money was never happening. So I was waiting for it, and it was not coming. So I would email them, and they would say, yeah, 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 we sent it, and then no. So basically, I had this experience of sort of money deprivation, which was quite ruining as well. And it also felt quite uh, degrading. Also, I had the experience of my computer just breaking down. And as Polish authorities were introducing, you know, further coronavirus uh, precautions, uh, limitations to our freedom of movement, the shops being closed and all this, this catastrophe of the computer was actually like the last drop, I think, that totally, you know, spoiled the water of the glass. I was really devastated. And also uh, many of the people who would otherwise give me some commissions, you know, who would ask me to write texts or give lectures or do other things that I do as I'm freelancing now, they stopped, you know, contacting me because they had no idea how their institutions are going to, you know, process the pandemic, etc. So the first two, three weeks of pandemic were quite terrible for me in the sense of extreme stress, but also a sense of receiving solidarity, help, support that I needed to an extent which I never expected. So there was, on one hand, this wave of failures that were happening every day, every second day, something was really going wrong. And then on the other hand, there would be support and solidarity actions, both those directly towards me, but also those that were sparkling, you know, as the pandemic was growing. Different groups were uh, created, you know, to help each other in different districts. At first, somebody opened a, a group which was called Visible Hand. So this group gathered some 20,000 people overnight, basically. And then from the next day, people started to mobilize in the smaller groups in other cities. And there were district groups created, you know, Warsaw is quite big. It's like 3 million inhabitants, more or less. And it's quite a large city, so it was easier, you know, to divide this, those visible hand groups into smaller groups. And then those groups were basically social media groups. And people would announce things like, okay, I live in Mokotu. I'm quite healthy, but also I can, you know, contact you with in this non-contact aseptic way. What I can do is I can take your dog out, I can get you some medicine or uh, food. I can also take care of your uh, whatever, something, garden or something. So these were very specific offers that people were giving to each other uh, on those groups. But also there were requests. So somebody would say, listen, I'm in Guatemala and my mother is in Warsaw. She lives more or less here and there. Uh, if anybody can bring her some, uh, you know, food would be fantastic, etc., etc. So this is the kind of, and I believe I heard uh, about similar groups forming in the UK and also in the USA. I believe perhaps also in Czech Republic you had similar stuff. And now again, I regret I cannot see you because then you just, you know, nod your head or, uh, or otherwise show me uh, what's the situation. So I cannot count on this. So I'm very sorry but that I have to guess that probably you were having also some kind of self-help, you know, organizations immediately. So this process 
together with the ruination of my own, uh, you know, life safety, uh, was uh, a very contradictory experience. So I was feeling that on one hand, you know, although I have an apartment, I cannot be fired of a job because I was already fired last year. So basically I'm kind of more or less safe. My situation is not going to destabilize much, much, much more. But on the other hand, everything that could go down was going down. So I had this enormous experience of failure. And also I started to ask myself about, you know, whether my life made any sense, if I can, if my life can be put on in danger quite immediately and with little failures. And then I started to rethink this amazing book by Jack Halperstam. The book is called um, Queer Art of Failure. And in it, Jack Halperstam speaks, writes about uh, failure to perform as a form of resistance to neoliberal capital. This was precisely the narrative I wanted, because I felt that if I fail so spectacularly in performing a successful neoliberal subject, then there might be something interesting, something critical, something deconstructive, perhaps also something radical and resisting to the profitability and productivity of neoliberal economy. And then I think at that moment, at the moment of embracing this idea that perhaps within this failure, obviously generously sort of supported by all kinds of people that are around me, to whom I'm super grateful. But I realized that perhaps this impossibility of performing a successful subject in the beginning of pandemic was actually a way of making it a critical stance towards the system we are living in, you know, the specific ultra-conservative, almost fascist politics that we have in Poland, but also more generally to the neoliberal capitalism and global imperialism that we experience. So I felt quite radical quite immediately. And also after the three first weeks of pandemic, um, my all those people who were supposed to, I don't know, pay me or hire me or whatever, they came back to me and they did pay me or whatever. It happened over two days, basically, that all those failures and weaknesses that I experienced so badly somehow reversed and they, you know, they went straight. So I was saved somehow. And I believe that it was a moment when I gained some sort of peace in my mind and in my head. And also I found all kinds of strategies, you know, from yoga to experimental writing, from, you know, experimenting with online dating, actually, uh, to experimenting with all kinds of cooking experiences and different friends and family meetings uh, online. Also, I started to invent, you know, formats in which my thinking because I'm not an artist. I mean, I do sometimes participate in artistic activity, but generally I'm not really an artist. So all those activities inspired me to search for a new format for my own thinking. In this most uh, hysteric time, so the first three weeks of the pandemic, I was also reading a lot of texts that were coming from those super prominent philosophers and thinkers. And I was, for instance, following the quarrels between Georgia Gamban and Jean Lignancy. I was following the thread of Slavoj Zizek, you know, writing his next book and publishing it in early uh, April. So I was looking at all this, I would call it historic, you know, necessity to not only to write, because writing seems quite natural in pandemic, especially if you are locked down, obviously you want to write if you can. That's fine. But if intellectuals, if leading intellectuals of this planet start to engage in fights over basically what is, in their opinion, the best strategy of surviving the pandemic, of using or misusing it, of resisting to it, or of contesting authorities, whatever. But if this happens in this kind of competitive, highly heroic way, I was put down by it, basically. I felt very disappointed that, you know, the discipline that I'm sort of representing in a sense that my main education is in philosophy, and often I have actually written philosopher various documents where they asked me, what is your profession? I can actually claim the profession of philosopher. So that's what I sometimes, you know, declare. So basically I was ashamed immediately that I have been declaring the belonging to this discipline while its most prominent members of this philosophical community are behaving in such a shameless, patriarchal, degrading, uh, condolescent um, way. I couldn't stand it. So later, obviously, also other texts appeared. So there were, among others, there was this beautiful analysis of Arundhati Roy, the pandemic is a portal, where she speaks about the prospects of perhaps, you know, undermining capitalist reality and normality and, and moving towards something different. There was a lot of writing from Rebecca Solnit also, 
you know, the author, the American writer who has those amazing books about hope, about activism, and who's kind of beautifully archivizing various experiences of resistance in different also geopolitical regions. So she's also, by the way, very fond of Václav Havel and a bit critical of him, but also very fond of this idea of power of the powerless. So basically, you know, I was looked at women who are doing much better of a job than men in theorizing within pandemia. And I thought it's somehow symptomatic. And only later I, I came across all those analyses of how countries where women are in power actually manage the pandemic better. So how Germany, Taiwan, uh, Finland, and so many other countries where women are, you know, prime ministers or form the government or majority in parliament, etc., etc., how those countries actually manage to be helpful, to be reasonable, to stay with no panic, but also to decrease the numbers of people in, infected with coronavirus and dying of coronavirus. And then I understood that, you know, we shouldn't obviously become essentialist, but we should, I think, you know, take under consideration perhaps the feminine gender and feminine socialization might have created some sort of better resistance to the madness that comes with the epidemic. Unfortunately for men, also the disease kills men much more easily than women. And therefore, there is also a sense of resistance that the feminine sort of upbringing, feminine socialization, feminine cultural aspects and values, perhaps also feminine embodiment even. Although again, I warn you against essentializing those statistics, but they are so strikingly somehow in favor of women that we have to think about it. And I think this is a way of rethinking capitalism today. So it's mainly taking under consideration, you know, what has been culturally and philosophically and theoretically and also legally very often inscribed under the name of femininity, and we have to rethinking and re-evaluate that. So my sort of fascination with the concept of power of powerless is actually directly a feminist one. So this is not definitely not something that Václav Havel would share with me, uh, as far as I know from Czech colleagues. There is actually a lot of criticism of Havel and of the um, Czech opposition, but also of the research, uh, historical archivizing of, of Czech opposition, in which, as many people assume, women have not been given enough space. And I obviously back it up. I cannot check it, you know, I don't speak your language, so I cannot read uh, your archives and really make sure that nobody is wrong here. But I believe that if so many various scholars from different political also uh, groups if you all say that there is such a big problem with embracing the notion that women can be political agents, there is a problem over there. In Poland, we do this kind of revising a lot. There have been movies about, you know, women active in solidarity movement. There have been even efforts to embrace the political agency of those women who were not activists, but who were supporting activist husbands or other male partners, family members from home. So there is also an effort to embrace the fact that reproductive and caring labor during the time of opposition has tremendously contributed, you know, to the success of the opposition. So Václav Havel's concept, the power of the powerless, is actually interesting because it joins the feminist and queer analysis of subjectivity and especially the feminist criticism of historical agency, political agency, understood solely as the heroic, macho, strong, brave and empowered one. So now I'm going to play you a little piece of a song, uh, a song uh, uh, written in Gdynia for a musical in 1980, so the year where Solidarność movement started in Poland. Uh, the author of the text is Ernest Brühl, the composer is Wojciech Trzciński, and this song is a main song of a musical those two men wrote together in 1980. Somehow, I think, I mean, I believe that artists uh, sometimes have this kind of intuitive access to the historical process a little bit earlier than other people. So basically, this musical, they started to plan it, to write it in March 1980, and only in August 1980, Solidarność started, and then in fall 1980, they could invite the people to, uh, you know, to the music theater for the musical that was basically expressing the same values, I think, that Solidarity did. So it's one of those amazing examples where you know, you see that artists somehow pre-sense the transformation that society is undergoing, but is not yet conscious of. So basically, the musical was created in 1980. The song is called the Psalmstunts of Kolejce, so a song of those queuing in a line. And I recall this song because uh, 
our recent feminist protests from the last week, two weeks ago, against another abortion ban that our government was trying to push unsuccessfully again. This protest took the form of queuing to get groceries. So our parliament in Warsaw, there is a nice grocery shop where the protesters would have slogans and banners and all kinds of information, leaflets expressing the protest against abortion. So I will play you a little bit of the song and then I will tell you more about the song. Okay, so basically this was a little piece. I'm trying to follow the Polish legal regulations and not use too much of a song. The singer who sings this song is Krystyna Prońko. And Krystyna Prońko obviously had some career in 1970s, but she, as you might have noticed already, has a very particular voice. It's a voice that both um, the author of the text and the composer, so Bryl and Szczyński, they were looking for somebody who would have, and now I quote, an ordinary voice, a voice of an ordinary person. When I was beginning my research in weak resistance and also in this kind of ordinary everyday resistance format, I came across this song and when I started to investigate, you know, how this song was created, because it's really, to me, it really sounds like an expression of a very ordinary concern because it speaks about people queuing in a, in a, in a line and, you know, waiting there for more, even more grayness and even more fatigue. And then thinking that they will get this more fatigue or grayness and they will bring it back home to have more of it. Basically, it's a kind of song that starts with this very depressive uh, first lines, which depict how they are tired and they're getting more fatigue in the line. This used to be a feeling that everybody had in Poland in the time. There was this grayness and sense of impossibility of any action, which actually in Havel's text is also depicted as the sense of powerlessness because the world globally is constructed in such a way where nothing can move. You know, there is a one empire and second empire that are in this embrace, which does not allow any further movement to happen. So then the people in, in our song in Poland, the people are standing. So Krystyna Prońko was quite a prominent singer already at the time, but still, you know, her career really started after this musical because she was the perfect voice. So obviously she has beautiful education as a singer and she has an amazing voice and also amazing musical vocal skills. So there is no denying of that. But yet still, she can sing in ways which are absolutely exceptional in the sense that there is this impression, this first impression, that she sings like anyone can do it. Believe me, I did try to copy her singing. And as much as I can follow, you know, melody and I don't have the worst ear, but still it's really impossible for somebody who has not been trained. So it's an amazing song which totally gives you this artificial sense of Authenticity, while it's a, it's a big, big, big lie, in fact, so it gives you this impression that it's an ordinary voice just singing like that, while in fact it's an extremely well-trained and a very skilled, very talented and very exceptional voice. So she sings at first with a little chorus. The chorus is called Alibabki. I think also in Czech it's a funny word, in Polish it's a funny word. So they sing about this despair and, you know, this sense of fatigue, etc. And then the lines change a little. So let me play another little piece of the song. So now you have the impression. So basically uh, the song speaks of being like a stone, you know, persist like a stone and surviving all this pressure or this grayness and fatigue as a stone. Because if you sort of persist long enough, there might be more stones like that, that would collapse together, forming a stone avalanche. And by thus changing the situation. So there is a sense of being, you know, little stones somewhere on the mountain. And then suddenly, you know, being so many of those stones that they would just collapse, they would destroy and transform the world underneath because of their massive avalanche. So I think this feeling you also might remember from Havel's text, 
the sense of, okay, if enough people do their usually routines while undermining and resisting the uh, existing system in small, ordinary ways, perhaps we can all wait until a moment when there is this critical mass of all of us, you know, each of us doing something radical, something critical, something undermining the existing rules, and therefore we might change reality. So basically, obviously in Poland, we have a long tradition of having the resisting messages, resisting uh, agency, resisting discussions, also in critical texts, etc. in Czech Republic as well. I believe it's slightly different as in Poland. We have this belief in what Maria Janion, our most prominent feminist uh, literary scholar uh, in our country. So Maria Janion speaks of this heroic messianism that we have in Poland. And she also, in 2016, she also somehow nicely, probably subconsciously backed up my research on weak resistance because she wrote this beautiful open letter to the Congress of Polish Culture in which she speaks specifically of the need to resist, to stop believing in the heroic messianism and to replace it with some other form of understanding and practicing the community. So here we are at home basically because with this image of heroic messianism being replaced by something else, Some of you might already imagine what might be the perfect replacement, obviously. And obviously it's the weak messianism. This concept or idea, actually, it's not really a concept very much, coming from Walter Benjamin, the uh, Jewish-German theorist uh, and writer. So he, in his 10 theses on uh, philosophy of history, in one of the first theses of this collection, he writes of the, this pact between generations. So there is not just a sense of being together as we stand, so basically in our chronic community. But there is also a sense of building connections between various generations of the oppressed. And this I like very much, this idea that we can connect with past and future generations, that there is a sense of responsibility that is being built by those oppressed from one generation to another. For me, reason why I appreciate so much this Benjaminian uh, concept of the weak messianism is that living in Warsaw means that you confront every day the ruins remnants of the fascist uh, occupation of the Warsaw ghetto, of the massive killing, you know, monuments, etc., etc. So you're basically confronted with fascist past in your everyday walking around the city. And I think it's extremely important to have the ability to conceptualize this kind of staying together. Also, you know, I would like to reference um, Donna Haraway and her recent book, uh, Staying with the Trouble, because I think staying with the trouble of fascism is our obligation, basically. And I absolutely, I mean, as much as I want fascism never to happen, you know, so the slogan never again is an important one for me. But also in my past theoretical and artistic practice, I've encountered moments when I've, I was extremely fed up with the never again slogan because I think what it did was basically making everybody believe that fascism will never happen. And as we now observe, this ain't true. <laughs> the opposite seems to be true, unfortunately. So the opposite being that fascism can wake up in all kinds of you know, societies, political contexts, historical moments. It seems to be, unfortunately, a kind of constant potentiality, a constant possibility for human politics to shift, transform into the most exclusive, oppressive political beliefs, focusing on granting the absolute sovereignty, so granting the absolute character to sovereignty and making it the only maker of the law, while at the same time the instance that is beyond any law, this kind of state of exception sovereignty aspect, is something that we deal uh, a lot with in Poland right now. So I'm going to give you a little bit of another song, a song that comes from a feminist protest uh, in 2016. The song is a collective oeuvre, if I may say, uh, made by some 30 feminist activists, mainly women, there were like, three men and 40 women, singing together a song uh, uh, on uh, angry line of women, basically. So it speaks of us being empowered and resisting. It speaks of us being very ordinary and interconnected. But also it says some brutal truths, like for instance, you will not burn us all. So there is a reference to the topic of, you know, witch hound and women hound 
that is also something, unfortunately, that happens throughout history. And we cannot, once again, we would love to say never again, but we cannot say it. So I'm going to play you a little bit of this song right now, and then we'll get back to the strategies of resistance. Okay, so basically this song became a kind of little anthem for the recent feminist protests in Poland, the ones that were so massive and so effective. And I discussed them in so many texts that are actually available online uh, quite easily that I don't want to go into that. But I just want to say that this protest has perhaps one very important element, important as a sort of information about uh, artistic practice or post-artistic practice that can become a vital aspect of political agency. So for this protest, which started uh, in different places, you know, by women groups that were formed to protest uh, the abortion ban. There was one woman, she's professionally a graphic designer and she's also a member of the Razem Party, the left-wing feminist party that we have in Poland. So Małgorzata Adamczyk, Gocha Adamczyk, she had this brilliant idea of collecting, you know, small gestures, kind of selfie, support selfie photographs from all kinds of women and our supporters and putting them on one particular social media website. And this was an amazing idea because for many women it was so much easier to take a selfie and put it online than to take it to the streets, for instance, or otherwise become a political activist. So this gesture, it's quite ordinary, quite simple, quite everyday gesture of putting your image, you know, wearing black in solidarity with the black protest was quite an easy way, quite an ordinary way for many, many women engage. And then after this action of collecting um, all those images, there were some hundreds of thousands of images that were sent to this website by different women from villages, cities, you know, Poland, from abroad, obviously, also some foreign women joined this action. But basically there were hundreds of thousands of, of those images that were floating around. When you open this page, you could find, you know, most important Polish actresses, I don't know, Krystyna Janda, uh, all kinds of, you know, actresses together with women who are not known, who are not famous, who are not activists or whatever. And we were all sort of together in it. So basically, I think that this somehow artistic action with the photographs, you know, and sending them to this website created a kind of common ground for all kinds of very different, very distinct, you know, women. And thus, it was so much easier later to go to the streets and to make the women strike. It was so tremendously effective. Also in blocking the effort to ban abortion. So basically, what I'm trying to argue by giving you this example of feminist activism, but also by sort of defending, you know, from the back, I'm a little bit defending selfie feminism and basically all this, you know, Instagram activism and uh, social media feminist activism, etc. Because I'm thinking that as a part of some larger deconstruction and critique of the existing society with uh, patriarchal norms of, you know, embodiment, of position, of power position, etc. And then also, you know, the internet activism as a part of more radical, more direct uh, ways of negotiating the social contract with patriarchal powers. I believe that the internet activism can actually be quite effective. I have been for many years, you know, even before I started my own Instagram account, I have been defending the, the selfie feminism because I had quite a strong intuition and later also I grounded this intuition into facts that there is so many important aspects of renegotiating the image of the bad, also the image of the ability, the racialized images, the contract with which we are sort of forced to follow some absolutely impossible ideas and not just of being a white blonde top model, but also of being fully capable and of being successful and of being rich and all that. So basically there is so much effort online right now made by activists, but also by people who are just, you know, interested in revising those norms, but also by artists that I'm thinking this can be quite an effective and quite interesting way. 
So I, I have this, you know, I translated the Cyborg Manifesto from Donna Haraway into Polish. So I'm quite fond of those strategies that are very diverse, sometimes even contradictory, because me being a Marxist feminist would, you know, try to criticize alienation, for instance, and then me being a supporter of selfie, uh, highly sexualized, you know, selfie efforts of some of my artist friends here in Poland might sound like a contradiction in the first place. But then if you allow yourself to sort of decompose the homogeneity of your political vision and if you embrace the fact that yes, living in late capitalist societies, we are contradictory and perhaps the best way of actually dismantling certain forms of oppression is to embrace our own contradictory uh, states and our own contradictions, then perhaps, you know, the selfie strategies combined with hard line strike uh, and protest does not seem so fantastic. So basically, the, this element of the ordinary uh, in the women protests from 2016 up to today uh, is very important also for me theoretically. I was also having a sense of learning something about participation and finding kind of universal common grounds in situations where you would say, okay, what does Krystyna Janda have to do with any ordinary activist or a liceum, you know, schoolgirl from some small town uh, in the middle of Poland? And apparently they do have a lot in common. So basically this was an amazing exercise in doing solidarity and I'm super grateful and super happy on one hand that I can share it with you, but also on the other hand that it ever happened because it gave a lot of hope and empowerment to so many people that you cannot really imagine. And I think the world in Poland has changed so much and so tremendously because everybody, not just women involved in the protests, we all felt the need of renegotiation of the, of the patriarchal contract. And we, for instance, are far more keen on doing other activism, including Me Too activism and, you know, transforming the public sphere and making it more egalitarian, changing the discourse, changing the narrative, but also changing the behaviors that it all has been fueled, you know, by the recent feminist protests. So I'm going to stop now and make pause, and then I will get back to you very soon. Okay, so now I'm going to continue the lecture or discussion of weak resistance in the pandemic times. And now closer to the pandemic times already, I would like to introduce the idea and the, the practice of the something that I called the Corona Seminar, and which consists in being basically an online seminar that started last week and will um, continue until um, 3rd of June. Unfortunately, it's only in Polish, so um, the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, also in their efforts to try to be in solidarity with those people who are freelancers and have not so much, you know, means to survive, um, but also recognizing perhaps some value in my proposition, they decided to host it. And I'm very honored to, you know, to be able to provide this seminar. The first edition was a streaming on Facebook, so you can also find it on my uh, Facebook account. It was a beautiful experience. I would like to share with you a little bit of the experience because I was thinking that I'm going to really speak to my wall. And what happened was that those people who were watching the stream, they started to actually engage in a discussion in the comments. And at a certain point, I got into this kind of rhythm of responding to the comments appearing in this uh, stream platform. So I was basically discussing while giving the kind of introductory lecture to um, this Corona seminar, I was discussing with different people all kinds of aspects of weak resistance, of monster era, and all kinds of things. So before I give you the actual description of the seminar, I would like to say that the, one of the um, commentators wrote something that this Corona seminar can be seen as a, a monster seminar. And this person said it because uh, while discussing all kinds of things that I was discussing in the lecture, I also used this uh, uh, metaphor from Antonio Gramsci, who speaks of the monsters and monster time as time of change, as time of that happens when, you know, one paradigm is becoming past and then the new paradigm is only being created, but we are still used to the old patterns and norms and uh, behaviors. 
and we are not ready to embrace the new. So basically, I think that, for instance, you know, to give you a very good example of, of this monster situation and monster time, I believe that for many, many institutions and for many men and also for some women, some aspects of the Me Too campaigns were exactly like monsters because we are, you know, the patriarchal times when you can abuse women sexually and otherwise in the workplace. These times are probably over. But on the other hand, the praxis and the discursive, you know, schematics and also the behaviors have stayed unchanged. And there is already a new mentality that is being put in place. But in between all those things, so in between this, let's say, harassing past, the present, you know, rejection of harassment and the future, hopefully free of, of sexual harassment of women in workplace, there are some spaces. So basically the very radical, very strong, you know, activism that happens in between those spaces can and is being experienced by so many people and institutions as monsters, because the new form, the new kind of emancipated feminine form, let's say, is coming to life, but it cannot yet be embraced. Not just because all those people are patriarchal assholes, or I don't know how else you would like to call them, but because their mentality is so deeply shaped by the past patriarchal imaginary and past patriarchal narrative skills and past patriarchal understanding of the world, that, you know, a woman who is announcing publicly, yes, me too, I was raped, or yes, me too, I was attacked, or yes, me too, I was sexually harassed for years, or something like this, for so many people, even hearing this kind of declaration in public is like encountering a monster. And those people who present after this kind of encounter, who present fear and panic and maybe also sometimes aggression, unfortunately, very often, I think, they are not, you know, supporting patriarchy. And they, if you ask them, they would say like, yes, of course I support women. And then they see, you know, this person speaking in public about rape their experience. And they would, there was, you know, terrified people would say like, no, this is not what I want. I'm not used to it. It's new. It's monstrous. And monstrous in this case does not mean, you know, bad or whatever. It means basically unknown. It means in between different known formats. So it's scary. Right now I want to dig into the sphere to explain why it's so frightening. Why those in between, not yet ready, but almost ready, forms of behavior might be terrifying. There is a beautiful anthropological and later also psychoanalytical explanation for it, which you also probably know, which is basically the sense of necessity of cleanness in Mary Douglas's analysis, for instance. You know, cleanness and dirt are this kind of, you know, binary codes depicting what is good, what is ours and what is other. And following this line, Julia Kristeva, feminist, you know, one of those equity feminine writers continuing Mary Douglas, she writes about the object. So object being this substance or thing or being that is not the subject, but also not the object yet. So giving the examples of the object, obviously there's a whole line of object art. So you might be familiar with the concept of object actually via this, uh, those art pieces. So whenever you see this kind of substances that are, for instance, coming from the body, but are not yet completely detached from the body, like, I don't know, it might be sperm, it might be menstrual blood, it might be saliva, it might be all kinds of, you know, defecation effects or whatever else you want. So these uh, fluid objects, first of all, their fluidity is sometimes, you know, very problematic for many, many people, but more often... It is the fact that it's still me, not yet me, not anymore me. It's also not a you. It's also not another subject. It's not an object even fully. This in-betweenness of those body, you know, substances, this is something that, that is terrifying. And I think that what Antonio Gramsci calls monsters exactly falls in the same category. So basically what he calls monsters. So what I tried to explain as those new forms that are, cannot yet be hosted by the language we speak, by the norms that we are used to, by our understanding of the world, they are very much behaving like objects. Yeah? So the time of monsters is also the time of pandemic, I think. 
because there are many new forms of solidarity and new forms of political critique which are not yet fully embodied, not yet fully concretized. And therefore, they might seem scary as those not yet ready, you know, not fully embraced by the current existing society. As you might hear, I'm smoking a cigarette, which is apparently, I mean, recent French research is showing that smokers are a little bit less threatened by the coronavirus. So I'm trying to, you know, add to this uh, support for the smokers by doing it. Also, I'm feeling very weak because the information about nicotine and nicotine's relations with um, coronavirus have been very contradictory. So at first there was a wave of information how smokers are actually more threatened by the disease. Then there was this, you know, revisiting of this axiom and uh, lots of people, researchers, said that in France and in uh, China, you know, the statistics shows that actually smokers are safer. Part of our con contemporary, our current weakness in the coronavirus time is that precisely we are bombarded with informations that are not only said, because every day, you know, we hear that so many and so many people died, so many and so many people are, again, you know, getting contagious and, and all kinds of, you know, very sad, depressing statistics are happening every day, every couple of hours, actually, if we check the news as often as I do, for instance. But so there is also, there is depressive information, but there is also contradictory and conflicted information. And I think embracing this objectality of the, of the time we are living in, so of the content we are confronted with, of the behaviors that we are observing, etc., etc., might make us a little bit more at ease with the times that we are in than the effort of being, you know, one like homogeneous in terms also of the knowledge that we embrace. I think that allowing ourselves a little bit of the contradictory, conflicted knowledge might save us from a sense of impurity and inclarity that the contemporary media are unfortunately providing us with. So basically the Corona seminar had all this in mind. So I was actually speaking about the monsters and about the, the object and about the uh, vulnerability of different sorts that we are experiencing. And I was referencing Wojciech Kosma, the artist, the performance artist from Poland, who lives in Berlin, London, New York, sometimes all kinds of places, who has this beautiful habit of actually holding, you know, like uh, hugging every participant of his um, participatory projects. And obviously I cannot hug you all. And also there might be some of you who don't like hugging. So I'm kind of really respectful towards, you know, different approaches to hugging. But, uh, you know, one of the most beloved elements of the Corona Seminar of this last edition was actually that we were all hugging each other virtually. So basically either speaking about it as myself or writing that in comments and a very beautiful moment happened when the Museum of Modern Art person responsible, you know, for the, their uh, Facebook profile, they also said like the museum is totally hugging every participant of the seminar. So this was a moment when very modernistic, very avant-garde, you know, modern museum of Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, suddenly saying we are we are totally hugging every participant of this seminar. It was really revolutionary in all kinds of ways, basically, and also extremely funny. So basically, this seminar is a mixture of uh, a seminar, and you know, we have texts that we all read, uh, and there is a, a theoretical line that is behind it. There are some theoretical stakes, obviously, but there is also a very cordial and welcoming atmosphere, which makes it a bit more similar to a artistic workshop or even a group therapy in the sense that people are really invited to share their knowledges, their uh, skills, the things that they've learned in the pandemic, but also we are trying, you know, we are embracing this vulnerability, weakness and contradictions that we are in. So basically it's not a typical philosophical seminar in which very often you would have this kind of macho position strongly occupied by usually men, but also sometimes women or queer people who would say like, I know the best solution to coronavirus. So my greatest effort was actually not to allow this kind of atmosphere. So as much as we can disagree or agree, as much as we can present all kinds of, you know, theoretical accounts of the pandemic, we are not really feeling invited to a competitive, you know, macho debate over who has the bigger one. Probably we all have small ones now and it must be sufficient and perhaps also in this diversity of our small, you know, vulnerable, uh, non-heroic perspectives. Among all this and together, we might, you know, come across a narrative that 
actually depicts something important in the coronavirus times and in the pandemic. So basically, my effort was to grant ourselves, you know, some reflexive space, which would be maybe similar to, you know, to the group effort of the ancient Greek thinkers, where they would have either the peripatetic school or academia or Korean academia especially. I don't know if you are familiar with Epicurus and, and, and his version of materialism. It's basically not just, you know, atomism, the early ancient version of atomism, but it was also the most welcoming philosophical school, maybe in history. I mean, there would be established philosophers who would participate, but there would be also slaves and servants and women and sex workers of the time. So basically starting with the high profile sex workers kind of, you know, aristocracy women who would maintain various relations with, with men. Uh, going down to the poor ancient prostitutes and slaves who were used as sexual workers, etc., etc. So all these people and also those who were born in Athens and then those who were not born in Athens. This, to me, still this Epicurean academia stands for me still as an example of a space where we can build things together and try to um, share our perspectives and experiences in order to really formulate the understanding of the times we are living in. I really hope that you stay safe and calm if possible, uh, but also if you are angry, go ahead with the anger. I think we are all entitled to, you know, to have space for our emotional developments. And I hope that you are also having an opportunity or some opportunities to reformulate your own workshop, but also your vision of the world in a sense that makes it somehow maybe more inhabitable, somehow more possible to share with others, and by that also more, you know, available to the ordinary failing, you know, non-heroic identities that we all are. This episode was produced by the Studio of New Aesthetic, FAMU. Dramaturgy by Martine Tocni. Editing by Max Weidt. Sound design by Daniel Wilczek. Guidance, support and consulting by Jan Kratochvil and Hinek Alt. Our Instagram is taken care of by Zuzana Markita Matskova. Host of the show, Ezra Shimek. Special thanks to Eva Majewska. Follow our Instagram, gingerjacks. That is G-I-N dot G-E-R-J-A-C-K-S.